ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology, are the study of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't You're listening do to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, a critical examination of the world of pseudo-archaeology and the misrepresentation of archaeology in the world today. Each episode, we focus the lens of archaeology on a topic and discuss reality versus fantasy. We've covered everything from ancient aliens to crystal skulls, from DNA to modern fakes. Join us for our discussion this week and get ready to think critically. Hey everyone and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasy Podcast. I am your host Sarah and I am joined with my two co-hosts today, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. How's it going guys? It's going as best as can be expected. The semester is well underway and just graded a test. Uh, Things are fine because nothing's wrong in the world. And we, today we called we, Little Mary Sunshine. He just said everything was fine, Ken. Did you not? I, I yeah, just a, just like that cartoon dog in the kitchen. <laughs> a, He's got his cup of coffee in his there house. There was a hit fire. of sarcasm, fine. but I'm I'm not judging. <laughs> and uh, today we are joined with our. We have a special guest, a returning champion again. We have Douglas Hunter with us, who has just released his newest book. Please excuse me. <coughs> so sorry. Uh, who has just released his most recent book, which is the, about the Beardmore relics, and it is called Beardmore. So, welcome back to the show, Doug. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, we have briefly mentioned the, the Beardmore relics a few times on the show, basically when we were talking about Vikings, because, of course, the Beardmore relics are definitive proof that there are Vikings in Minnesota, correct? Uh, Northern Ontario. Uh, Kensington Stone is Minnesota. <laughs> Beardmore is Northern Ontario. Right, right, right. But I totally yeah. remember oh, somebody telling me sometime on a television show that because yeah, those things they, were they in Canada... To, they do get cross-pollinated. They, one kind of <laughs> started to support the other. And that's like you get two very bad ideas, but you combine them in this super-powered force, and it's like suddenly they become an okay idea together. <laughs> where independently they're awful, but together they're like compelling. And that's kind of what happened. So what you're... What you're saying is if I throw the Newport Tower in there, then I really well, do have Well, and the Newport like, Tower was in there, too, is, you know, for the book. Yeah, I mean, the Newport Tower was a thing at the time. It was linked in with sure. the Beardmore thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, Doug, probably a lot of our listeners are a little bit of a loss here because they, they've heard of them. They don't really know what the hell they are. And maybe right. you could, just as you do right. in the book, just explain a little bit about what they were purported to be and how they were right. discovered, who found them. Right. Right. Okay. The sh- the, there is no short version of this story, but the shorter version is um, in December 1936, uh, Charles Tricrelli, who was the renowned director of the Royal Ontario Museum Archaeology Division, which is, was and is one of the great archaeology museums of the world in Toronto, um, he bought a collection of Norse relics from an itinerant railway man and, and, and prospector from northern Ontario. Uh, who said he was working on his mining claim north of Lake Superior near this whistle stop called Beardmore and using dynamite and he was blowing open a trench and, uh, you know, all the rubble settled and there was this sword and an axe and a shield. And when he tried to pull the shield out of the ground, the, the, the thing just crumbled and he was left holding the handle in his hand. Um, so 
Crelly's eyes bugged out of his head. It was electrifying, as he as he would later uh, describe it. He bought them for five hundred bucks, which was about seven thousand dollars today. He got a pretty good. And they were supposedly a Viking grave, uh, even though there was never a body. Mm-hmm. Um, and they finally went on, they went on display at the Royal Ontario Museum in 1938. By then, a controversy had erupted over where these relics really came from because there was a counterclaim that there was this was actually a hoax that Eddie didn't find them on his mining claim in Northern Ontario. He found them in the basement of a house he was renting um, from a Norwegian immigrant who had got the relics as collateral for a loan to another Norwegian immigrant who had since died. So this was the real source of them. Um, but there were abundant problems, hoax, the hoax allegations, and Corelli was able to prevail reasonably successfully in this argument, uh, partly by fairly recklessly using his professional networks to kind of suppress, you know, the, the opposing opinion. Um, and they stayed on display at the ROM until 1956 when a crusading uh, anthropologist at the museum and the University of Toronto, they're conjoined institutions that they were then, the U of T and, and the museum, the big public museum, uh, Edmund Carpenter, who's, who's well-known in the world of anthropology and archaeology, is a filmmaker, a partner of Marshall McLuhan in media studies. Anyway, he had just written, he had just reviewed a book on the Piltdown hoax, which had just fallen apart in '53. He was convinced Beardmore was another one of them, and he was the guy that really gave it the final shove that that the case collapsed, and a couple of people came forward with affidavits that said this never happened. So they were taken off display. So they they kind of they really did rewrite. I mean, there were school textbooks in Canada that were written that the Vikings came to Ontario and it really was linked up with the Kensington stone. Hjalmar Holland of the stone was very much involved, you know, over on the Beardmore side, mm-hmm. on the authenticity side. So this, this fact of, you know, of history, you know, lasted for about 18 years. And even after they came off display, the museum for more than a decade was having a tough time just absolutely accepting that there was no chance that they were they were real it really took until probably the 70s for for the rom to to really find you know they're not they're not what they are they they are authentic norse items but there was no Norse grave in northern ontario to clarify something i I think you have said this but i really want to make this clear because i keep hearing i've heard people talk about like stuff was seeded here and there no one ever saw these in any provenience third party did they well this is well the part of the part of the argument was it became an affidavit um which really is interesting parallels with the kensington stone where people were writing affidavits signing affidavits saying yeah i, I saw Ullman, you know on his property thing so the case for the provenance was really driven part in, in large part too by a crusading newspaper man named Jean curran from sault ste marie who was a great promoter of the north and he was convinced that Vinland was in northern Ontario and sort of upper Great Lakes, Minnesota. He wrote a whole book called Here Was Vinland, which it's really amazing I found when I was covering writing about this, is that how seriously in mainstream scholarship Beardmore was taken and the Kensington Stone was taken. Helmer Holland really resurrected the legitimacy of the stone in a lot of eyes. A lot of people were very you know, opposed to it, but there were, there were people that believed in the Kensington Stone, and one of the people was uh, Charles Tricarelli at the ROM. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the war, just to fill that in, yeah, the, when it became a controversy, what happened was that Dodd and his supporters, Eddie Dodd, the, the hoaxer and his supporters, 
with a lot of help from Jim Curran, were they were finding witnesses who could say, I, you know, I went to the mining claim, and the, the the dating is really critical in this story. I was there in 1930 or 1931 in the spring, and I saw the objects on the side of the claim, or Eddie showed them to me in his house in 1930. Uh, and this is critical because Eddie didn't become a tenant of the guy who said they were stolen from him, a guy named James Hansen, the Norwegian immigrant. He didn't become a, a, a tenant of Hansen's until the fall of 1931. So if Eddie could get all the affidavits that said, you know, I saw them in May 1931 at his house, or I saw them on the mining claim in May 1931, or I saw them at his house, you know, in Port Arthur, Ontario in, in you know, in 1930, well, then all bets were off. I mean, there, there was no counterclaim from James Hansen, because how could Eddie have things from a house he didn't even live in, you know, at the time? So the affidavits, witnesses were really important. Yeah, but but it's all later once it's a controversy. I mean, this is not unusual. I just was teaching yesterday, yeah. uh, um, you know, a course on critical thinking, investigating the paranormal, etc., and yeah. we were talking about the Patterson film, the 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 Bigfoot yeah, yeah. film, and yeah. how like never mind whatever is in that film, there yeah. are real problems about the timeline, and people are right. saying, oh, this was here. And it's like, and there's things that simply don't make sense if everyone's right. telling the truth. Right. Well, the problem with the Beardmore story too is that nobody tells the truth consistently all yeah. the time. Almost nobody in this story. This is what's really ma- becomes maddening about it, and is that even on the hoax side, like the witnesses, their stories keep changing. There's two guys that come forward, Eli Rigaud, who's a railway guy who lived and worked with Dodd. He, I mean, he comes forward with the original claim that I was a tenant with, I lived in, the, in this house, I'm the one that found them in the basement, and then Rigaud just kept changing his story. I mean, he I'm, would, having, he, I'm having he Roswell would, flashbacks. Yeah, he, he, would, he was brought <laughs> to the museum to be shown them, and he, he actually twice signed affidavit saying the items I saw in the museum are not the items I saw in Eddie Dodd's house. But then the the investigators of the hoax would get a hold of him and he would be kind of Kind of like, well, I don't know, maybe I saw the sword or part of the sword. He really couldn't decide to make up his mind. Then he'd go out and he'd sign another affidavit saying he didn't do it. So finally, he was run over by his own train, and that kind of took him out of the... That's the, not a metaphor, is it? No, no he literally was run over by... People die... A surprising number of people die quite messily in this story, or stage their own disappearances, or commit suicide by drinking bleach. It's got oh, some very, very a conspiracy. Clearly. Yeah, well, it's, obviously, it's right? They're very being... strange story. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 ROM is act is doing away with people at this point. Is that what we're implying? <laughs> oh, I think it's got to be the Templar. Uh, I mean, you guys, yeah. that's a lot of suspicious death. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. they saw the Mothman. Maybe it's the Mothman curse. Yeah. Yeah. Mothman. Yeah. Doug, one of the things I really love about the book is that, as you say, it's not just the story of Beardmore. It's the story of the story. Yeah. Um, and I love that. Now, when these things were being displayed in the museum, I, I presume yeah. they were given a place of honor and it was a real big deal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Ha- one of the things people have to remember, too, and archaeologists, archaeologists will know this, is that there was no physical proof of Vikings in the New World anywhere that anyone accepted. Okay, right. We didn't get Lanzo Meadow until 1960, and even Lanzo Meadow was until the mid-60s that we found the, the, a very small cloak pin that said, okay, these are Norse people, and they, they can't be anybody else. So before then... You know, you go back to Antiquitades Americana in the 1830s and earlier, and there was the movement to say, 
you know, the Vinland sagas, yeah, there's a lot of legend and crazy stories, but there's a historical reality to them. But then try to get people to agree on where Vinland was. Nobody could agree on where it was. Somewhere maybe Newfoundland, somewhere all the way to Virginia. Um, there's all kinds of, you know, doubt, dubious that's polite rune stones popping up that are just not credible, but nobody, nobody has anything, you know, nobody has any relics. And then up comes this whole freaking grave. And, um, Corelli at the time wrote, you know, a letter that he said, this is the most important historical find in the, in America, by mm -hmm. which he meant North America. And if it was real, it was absolutely true. I mean, this, this is groundbreaking stuff. Um, but it, it wasn't real. And, um, so what was really interesting to me about the whole debate is, well, there's a couple things that we could get to, but one is that, uh, I talked about how power is exercised through networks. You know, it's a very small cliquish world. And one of the things I deal with, and I deal with pseudo history is people saying that standard Eric Von Danik, any idea of it, like, well, this is a closed shop and it's a power thing. And, you know, they don't like outsiders with, you know, ideas upsetting their world. Unfortunately, every now and then it happens. And in the Beardmore case, it absolutely did happen because Corelli really gambled all his intellectual, cultural capital of a great career of a great institution, and he said, this stuff is real, he controlled the evidence, and he could shut people down, and he did. He really suffocated the conversation, and it was also a very, you know, you know, it was, an, it was a climate where nobody would cross Corelli professionally. There was no professional historian or archaeologist working in Canada or North America, that matter, who was publicly willing to take on Corelli. There was, a, there was only one, and it was uh, Anton Willem Brogger in Norway, and the only place he was showing up was in the Scandinavian press. His voice was not being heard in North America. So well, nobody, was, nobody was challenging him. And so it was left to bizarrely to me and us at this time, it was left to a, a high school vocational teacher and a federal government geologist in Canada working on their spare time with their own money to try to investigate what actually happened. <laughs> so, well, what you just a, said makes me yeah. think of two cases. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go. Yeah. Well, just that there's, there's two very similar cases. We've talked, I think, about – we've talked about one, maybe both, and they're very similar, including the outsider bit. One you already mentioned, Piltdown. Piltdown yes. succeeded mm -hmm. because of yep. all the powerful people that yeah, right. very much probably class. didn't know it was a hoax, but supported it. Yeah, and it was very much class-driven, too, yeah. very British class system mm -hmm. stuff. And class, and then, is very, class is very important in beer more. And then the other one is, and I, we've talked about this a little, I think, the, the decipherment, not a hoax, but the decipherment of Maya hieroglyphs were put Absolutely back the, an entire generation yeah. mm -hmm. by yeah. J. Eric Thompson, who nobody would challenge. And yeah. most of the challengers were either literally outsiders like uh, right. you know a grocer in in, in Mexico or or you know a Soviet scientist um, yeah. or they were f kind of fringy mayanists or alternative the one that finally sort of began to bend Thompson was only when Tatiana Proskuryakov was like no seriously yeah yeah so these cases happen and that's what's interesting to me what I deal with in the app to say well this is a fun it's kind of like this is a it's a hoax it's it's a fun mystery but it happened 80 years ago, but what do we learn from it? You know, what are what are the, what are the things that happened that were peculiar to the time that it shares with other things? And there, there are some parallels too with the problems that it had with the Vinland map at Yale. Um, but but what do we, you know, what should we be wary of and concerned about that happened in Beardmore that can happen in a contemporary setting?
So many, many things that why beer might happen, I, I just don't think can happen today. But there is always this worry and concern about exercises of professional power. And that's clearly what was going on, amped up on steroids, you know, with the Beardmore case. So mm-hmm. you mentioned there are things that you think that could not make it happen today. Some of them may be structural, and we may come back to that. Yeah. Uh, are some of them just simply technical? Well, some of it is, I, I think a lot of it is. Or, or maybe is, procedural. Yeah. Well, I think one of the key things was, is, is, how do you get your how do you get your voice out how do you project it into into the community and so when this was happening in the late 30s canada especially is a very small i mean there's barely even an anthropology department in a, in a university um there there are there's no other media to you know the the guys that were trying to bring this forward like teddy elliott um they were getting nowhere in the popular press because Literally, you know, editors would just call Corelli. They never wrote anything that involved Corelli without talking to Corelli first. And he would just say, this is a lot of rot, and then they wouldn't run it. You know, the editor would say, well, this is libelous, or we don't have space. So they tried and failed to get their message out through the through, through public. There was right. very little in the way of academic forms. They, um, they tried the Royal Society of Canada, and they were actually sabotaging the Royal Society of Canada. Uh, one of Corelli's allies got up and cut into Elliot's speaking time, he was making a presentation and then they maneuvered his paper out of the royal society transaction so it couldn't run um but i think the biggest thing has happened today is that there are just so many other communication avenues we have i've talked to people that before like well once you'd run out of the newspapers you didn't have newspapers to go to and you didn't have you know there's no real journals and you and these formers like the royal society are, are open to you well there's no internet there's no blogs there's no internet radio there's no twitter so there's things and there's also a much more diverse academic community. So now you can have controversies. Uh, I, I, I cited the example actually because I was just finishing the book at the time where there was a press release from a, a Scandinavian um, institution where they said their, one of their scholars had found you know, the word Allah on a, an, right. on a Norse item from yeah. the 10th century. And it literally took a, 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 a took a, a, an Islamic expert in the U S I think in Texas, I can't remember her name right now. It took her like two days to get on right. Twitter and say, this writing style doesn't exist until the 11th and 12th centuries. It's impossible that it's on this stuff. From the ten- and that was the end of it. That was right. absolutely the end of the amazing claim. So those kind of, those kind of, kind of contextual things really help and this kind of thing that happened then can't happen now i really have i would have a hard time imagining beardmore lasting more than a month or two now when it went on for 18 years before we do have something very similar that ha- that popped up recently here in the states though the the thing out in california um is this the mastodon and, thing, and you're, the mammoth yes. 100,000 year old people yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, because of the use of because they, they use social media yeah. to get their message out, and they were rebutted right. via social media. Right. And so it's a two edged that whole thing. I think it only took a couple yeah. a couple few months before it kind of wound. So it's through. clearly a two edged sword. I mean, there's a lot of junk that gets out there because you know media is overly receptive now to these alternate ideas. Um, but it also allows if if you want to leverage it as a scholar, it's just not hard to use. And the ironic thing is, is that Corelli very early on says, 
in a letter because he takes he, he, he I don't think he knew quite what to, what to do with them after he bought them and so there was this kind of lag before they were going on display and he does say a letter to one person at, at one point that whenever you find something like this there are people out there that are right away going to try to prove that they're wrong he really expects that this stuff is going to get a hard ride the amazing thing is is that the stuff doesn't get a hard ride there were so many problems with you know with the case for authenticity that even Edmund Carpenter said in the 50s that anyone who still believed in this you know from 1938 on you know had a na- had a naivety beyond the capacity of ordinary minds and which, love was that. Sh- yeah. which was a sh- which was a <laughs> shot at people he was working for at the time uh which was quite remarkable how independent he was but um yeah so even though Crowley was saying you know they're going to take a shot at this well they didn't they they didn't well, Doug, well, the, the the desire to quash this. Yeah. Well, well, Ken, we're we're about to go to break. Okay. So I I I have uh, some things I want to ask. And I was like, you have some things to ask, and I think yeah. maybe we'll pick that up after the break. Absolutely. <laughs> Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the pub when the We hope you're enjoying spent. this episode. Please be sure to check out the show notes Uneating at com for further information about our hosts guests and topics in this episode this podcast is listener supported and we appreciate every donation either in the time it takes you to rate and share this episode or monetarily on patreon and Kofi. you can connect with us on the blog by email or on twitter thanks to all of our supporters and let's get back to the show dinosaurs raise your trials as one will call no way down to dinosaurs And we are back, and we are still speaking with Douglas Hunter about his new book, Beardmore, which means we're also talking about the Beardmore relics. And, Doug, that was a great breakdown of, of you know, the quick version of the story. Um, your book is crammed full of details. I mean, it's it's almost like a script for a TV series. I feel like you could get a whole two seasons out of it. Um, but I know that there are, you know, when you abbreviate something, there's always questions. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ken, go ahead with your question. The, you know, the internet now, it's a double-edged sword. Is that a, a rusted Viking double-edged sword yeah. that you're talking about? Uh, yeah, probably so. Yeah. Anyway, you know, when I, see, when I see people working very hard to quash dissent on yeah. about the authenticity, I wonder if in their hearts, are they really concerned that somebody's going to come up with something that definitively proves that, in fact, it's it's not authentic? So yeah. these people who are very, who are at least on the surface seem to be very certain that this thing is the real deal. Are they yeah. really, really concerned about the, about whether or not they're right? Yeah. Corelli, I, I, he, there's no question he had worries. Um, he also desperately wanted this stuff to be real. Yeah, it's very clear that he was torquing the case, the provenance case, almost from the moment he bought the stuff. Um, and for a public museum, you know, he controlled a lot of the, he controlled the material. He controlled affidavits. Um, there was a lot of stuff that the public should have known about that he would not release. And he could also misrepresent, uh, as to what was, you know, what, what, what the support for the, for the find was. Um, but he was afraid. I, I think I, he went through a shift. I mean, when the hoax allegations first broke, um, to his credit, I mean, he, he put out a statement in the press that basically said, well, whatever, we, you know, what we paid for them, what you can say what it was, they're valuable whether they were found in a grave or they became, you know, they, they weren't. They're still important to the people of Ontario. You know, they're, they're Norse relics. And he kind of leaves Dodd, Eddie Dodd, the hoaxer dangling. Um, 
but in the in the next month or two he his his position hardened i think he saw that when the polls and problems started emerging in the counter case for the hoax um because the stories just weren't consistent from the claimants you know that that the dodd really got them you know elsewhere and he saw that he could carry the day with with the academic community he just kind of doubled down and and really committed himself to and his institution's reputation to this stuff being real um he also people understand there was never a formal proper remote remotely close to an archaeological investigation mm-hmm. uh in in uh, about nine months after he purchased them he sent thomas McElrath, his curator of ethnology up to the site with eddie dodd McElrath had never he may have been taught archaeology in england but he had never performed archaeology in north america he was an ethnographer and so you know the he wrote a, a flimsy five-page report that was never released he didn't do any measurements he kind of poked a trowel here and there um eddie found another piece of metal for him eddie was very good at finding things whenever anybody else was around um and you know mcelroy came back and just reported that basically in the end he rationalized why this was a grave even a body um and then he said it really came down to do you find any dot an honest man and he said i do and he insisted on that position right i mean for decades that eddie was honest and if you start with that I mean, maybe he gilded some details in his story, but it happened and he found the stuff here. But mm-hmm. Corelli actively, first of all, I think people had an impression that there was something like a scientific investigation of the site, which which remotely was never done. And then when there any time there was an, an indication or a suggestion that there should be a dig, Corelli crushed the idea. Mm-hmm. And I think why he crushed it is by the time you know these uh, these suggestions were coming up he just said it would be hopeless how are you going to find anything on a site that's been dynamited and it's just a portage which it never was you know why even go well you go look because if there was a body and animals dragged it away maybe there's bone fragments maybe there's maybe there's a knife maybe there's some other part of this guy's equipment that's supposedly there but what he why what he was afraid of i think he was genuinely afraid because there a pattern had been established that whenever eddie went to the site with somebody he found another piece of metal so Eddie was salting, and it's a good question where Eddie had all this stuff. I think he had, I even think he might have even had a second sword. That's a whole other part of the story. But Eddie just kept finding things. And I think Corelli was was probably really concerned that if we ever go up there and try to do a dig, Eddie's going to walk in and fudge it up by planting stuff. Mm-hmm. And... You know, because he's just going to be more helpful again. And then after when that happens, all everything is is incredible. You think so Eddie really was, had this work. Sorry. You think that Eddie was smart enough at the at the very get go to salt yeah. to put aside extra pieces that he knew would he might be called upon to find. I think it's important for me to say too is that I don't think Eddie ever set out to hoax the Royal Ontario Museum. This is a really really important part of the story. Eddie, I think, stumbled on this stuff. Found in the basement. We don't actually have a hundred percent, you know, definition of how this happened. But we're it's in the high nineties that the stuff really did come from Norway. Came from this guy named John Block, whose father Andreas was a very well known illustrator of Norse subjects. Even had Norse artifacts. His son emigrated, used them as a loan to this guy James Hansen as collateral. Then he moved to Vancouver and died. Hansen had the stuff, left them in the basement of a house that he rented to Dodd, and Dodd walked. Dodd walked off with all kinds of things. He was kind of a low grade con man with with 
with, you know, sticky fingers. I mean, he took fishing gear and all kinds of stuff out of this house. So I think Eddie found this stuff. And the value to Eddie was, you have to remember, this was the depth of the depression. And gold price spiked about 70% when the U.S. went back on the gold standard in February, in January 1934, or February 1934. And he had a mining claim. And it, which never amounted to anything, but Eddie was always trying to find money from people so he could work the claim. And even if it wasn't really going to find gold, he could always kind of siphon the money off to do other things with. He was that kind of guy. So I think what the relics were to him were a conversation starter. He would carry them around. He would take them in a hotel. He had them in a case, and he would say to people, hey, what do you think of these things I found? And he was always this innocent. Maybe they're French. Maybe there's an Indian grave. He knew they were Norse, but he let other people figure that out. But what he really wanted to do was talk about the mining claim. So once you had their attention, he'd be like, well, let me tell you about my claim near Beardwalk. Let me tell you about the essays I've been getting, you know, or essays. I mean, this is where, you know, money needs to be spent. I don't think they ever would have gotten to the ROM. The only reason they got there was that in 1934, he told a story on a train when he was coming back from his claim to a teacher, Teddy Elliott, who was on his own way back from a summer mining claim. And two years later... Elliot decided to look up Eddie. Eddie had said, come around the house sometime and I'll show you the relics. And Eddie, Elliot thought he's been drinking. I don't, I don't really know how this true the story is. But two years later, he changed his mind, shows up in Eddie's door, summer 1936. Here's the story, looks at the relics again, writes the ROM. If Teddy Elliot hadn't done that, I don't think the relics ever would have gotten to the ROM. And by the fall of 1936, it's bad. I mean, Eddie has almost no work. 500 bucks, $7,000 today is still money. Mm -hmm. I think Eddie just got to the point where, well, you know, somebody wants to give me money for these things. They, they, there was no value to them anymore for a story because nobody believed him. And he kept changing the story. So at that point, it just became the ROM's problem. He wanted to be anonymous. He gets his money. The problem is when it was the, the, you know, these other people came forward and then Eddie gets identified. And then it becomes the ROM's problem because Eddie's been telling the story nine ways to Sunday, different versions, different years, different circumstances. So now these other powerful people for their own credibility and to defend their purchase have to fix up Eddie's story for him. So that's really what happened. Eddie is not a sophisticated criminal mastermind. Um, I really do think he had more stuff. Um, there were more pieces, and he may have he may have actually had a second sword, which never surfaced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that, that I'm, I'm thinking about, just kind of tangential to this, is that um, so that Corelli then becomes not so much a scientist or a historian, but a, a def an attorney defending yeah. the case of this, which is exactly the, the metaphor that Grant Hancock used. Um, right. At some point, they ask, they ask Grant Hancock, well, why don't you present material that, that, um, that puts your, your theory, your hypothesis into dispute? And he said, right. well, that's not my job. My job is to present the facts that support what I, I am like. I am the equivalent of an attorney. Right. And right. it sounds like that's what people are doing with Beardmore. They're, right. they're, they're not looking for what it really is. They know what they want it to be, and that's what they present. I think what, I think what happened with Crelly is, is, is this sort of contradiction of that his case for the authenticity really was shooting down the case for the hoax, because there were holes in the hoaxer's case. And he really thought, and I think genuinely, to some, I mean, to a reasonable degree, he thought like Hanson especially, the, the, the guy that owned the property, mm -hmm. he was just contriving a claim 
to the relics to get some money out of the museum or some money out of Eddie Dodd. Um, he didn't think he had a legitimate claim. He got to the point where he could at least rationalize that self. The problem with the case, as I'm trying to say to people, is that for all the problems with the way the hoax case was presented, it's almost irrelevant to the problem the museum had because the, the essential problem with the museum's authenticity case is they didn't authenticate it in any kind of remotely scientific way. They didn't do an archaeology dig, um, even by the standards of the time. And the most important thing is that, is that Crelly just really did not do a proper provenance search and a typology thing. What happens is, in late after about a year, it was right before the hoax allegations break, he finally gets around to writing experts, sending out a picture of the relics. He writes 10 experts in North America and Europe. Some of them are recommended by Hilmar Holland, the Kensington guy. And Holland really did know a lot of the literature and a lot of the people in the field. And Holland is this fascinating guy who is was completely off the rails about the Kensington Stone, but he still had this capacity to look critically about what everybody else was. So while he wanted to believe in Beardmore, he actually had some very, very pertinent questions and concerns about the case. But anyway, so these, so Corelli gets these names and he writes all these people and he writes them this, he sends them a photo of the artifacts and he, and he writes this totally inadequate paragraph that just says, we've come into the, I'm paraphrasing, but it's basically we've come into the possession of this Viking grave that's got a sword, you know, an axe and a shield that was completely destroyed getting out of the ground, but we saw the handle. Um, here's a picture. Can you tell us what type of weapons they are? Because they don't even own – the museum doesn't even own Jan Peterson's standard guide to Norse you know, relics, um, no, uh, which is you know, it's, it's still used today, the letter typology system for you know, swords, axes, and stuff like that. So when you read his letter, it's quite obvious. The one thing he doesn't tell anybody is where did he get them? I mean he doesn't even say they're in Ontario. So you get these people writing back to him over the course of a month, and they're a fascinating series of letters, which I ended up using, and they're all leading experts. A couple of them will not tell you well not well, you tell me where the grave is and I'll tell you you know, I'll tell you what I think of, you know, the typology. Others bizarrely don't even seem to care where they came from. Um, and so they give them their opinions really by by looking at Peterson's book and saying, Well, this looks like an M type sword and a whatever axe. Um and I can deal with the problems that are that are in there, but first, what I wanted to say is that one of the key guys really is 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 Brager, who is the head of the Museum of Cultural History in Norway and the Viking Ship Museum. He's the leading archaeologist of his generation and in in Norse archaeology. He's the president of the Nor Norwegian Archaeological Society, so he's one of these guys that currently writes. And so he answers back and he says, um, I'd be happy to tell you about the typology, give you advice on typology, but first you have to tell me where you got them. And what Brogger doesn't even dream is possible is that they're from North America. Mm -hmm. What Brogger is concerned about is that they've come from Norway. Because after 1905, when Norway got its independence, you couldn't take these cultural materials out of the country without an export permit, which nobody got. So if somebody emigrated from Norway and took the Viking relics, they left the country illegally. He wanted to know where Corelli got them and be assured that this stuff wasn't illegally taken to Canada. What does Corelli do? He answers them this most astonishing letter, just says, thank you for your time. And again, but basically, thank you for your time. Uh, I have all of the advice I need. I'm about to publish, and there's really no need for you to comment any further. Good day. <laughs> Brogger simply I did, cannot I did believe like that. 
cannot believe that he's been treated this way, you know, by this literal provincial museum. And he writes it back and says, no, really. I mean, again, but it's like, no, really, where did you get them? Like, <laughs> tell me where you got these things. And Corelli doesn't answer him. And it's a fatal error because Brogger will be one of the key people that the hoax investigators will tap into and be able to use their expert, his expertise in building the case why this grave is not where it is. So what's the big problem with the grave? Apart from the fact there's no body, one of the things the people that are looking at the typology forum immediately start noticing a problem is that there's an M-type, basically, there's an M-type sword with an M-type axe head. It doesn't matter that they're the same M's. That's just the way the coding works. The M-type sword, the M-type, M-type swords, very common in Eastern Norway. They they exist from you know the 800s up until about 950. Then the axe shows up in the record, and they run from about 950 into the thousands. And the way Peterson worked out his typology, because a lot of these goods, if not most of them, were known from graves. So, so what was really important with the typology was how did you find these articles in association with each other? And there was no grave, and there's lots and lots and lots of graves. There was no grave in Scandinavia that had an M-type sword and an M-type axe together because they're in different periods. Mm-hmm. They just didn't associate. So how do, how do you get these objects, you know, in a grave together? Well, Crowley hasn't told these people they're in a grave in northern Ontario. And nobody's really pushing them on it. So, but they're accepting the esteemed advice of Charles Tricarelli, who says they came from a grave. So they just kind of reverse engineer the problem and say, well, if there really is a grave and they're really from a grave, then the grave must be at that period of 950, right when the sword is going out of phase, but right when the <laughs> axe is showing up. And so this must be what it is. And so Corelli can go forward without ever quoting anybody saying, the experts in, you know, the experts in this field agree these are, you know, all from the same period, you know, and date to roughly 950. That's not what they said to him at all. What they said to him was, how do you get the stuff from the same place at the same time? We don't, we don't, we were having a problem with this. But hey, you said it's a grave, so we'll try to make it fit for you. Um, so Crowley so never did the, right. they're rationalizing based on the good faith that Crowley actually has a grave. When there's no evidence of a grave whatsoever, it's just stuff he got from Eddie Dodd. And that's, and then he in turn, because he never releases material, but he writes, you know, a, a preliminary article for Canadian Historical Review that authoritatively says the experts say this, you know, well, the experts weren't ever told it's a grave in Northern Ontario. And if you had told them it was a grave in Northern Ontario, their heads would have exploded. And some of them wrote and said, you know, one of them actually did write and say, is this grave in Canada? Um, because that would be pretty extraordinary, and is it a scientifically safe find? He never answers them, because I, I, obviously you're really nervous about how scientifically safe this is, because no, there was never a dig, and there was never a post-dig and post-find investigation. So there you go. I like how many motifs are popping up during this yeah. that are classic pseudo-archaeology to- yeah. uh, to- tactic. Yeah. And it's it's very interesting to me to see... It happening at such a modern date, I guess, is what I'm yeah. trying to get out there. A, and to be used by people who I feel like they should have known better, but maybe I'm giving them too much credit. All right. 
Well, there was well, also a lot of institutional deference because I should talk about this. There was a lot of class. Like oh, I like the fact that you keep yeah. bringing up the class aspect. Oh of yeah, class you can, really you can clearly see it, it happening. Yeah, it was very important in Piltdown, but it was also very important in this case because one of the arguments yeah. for Corelli's thing was that Eddie Dodd is this itinerant railway guy. He's unsophisticated. He's just right. He's just, right. He's not sophisticated enough to pull he's not sophisticated enough to do that. To someone yeah. like. Charles Trip Corelli, ace archaeology professor of the world. See, I, you know, you can't, he couldn't fool Corelli, you know. Corelli fooled himself. Yeah. That particular claim gets brought up a lot by different groups. Um, I hear it on Unearthed America. You heard that all the time. Yeah. Oh, these people are too, it's like at the same time, they're too simple to have come up with such an elaborate hoax. Yeah. yeah. But yet also, they're like the everyman fighting against the great dragon right. that is right. you know, the, the paradigm of the day. And this is the, but, this is the awkward thing of Beardmore because it does turn into this everyman. It's like a school teacher who runs into every cliche of the academy trying to crush the outside descent. I mean, it, right. it, 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 it's cartoonish at times. Like you just, I can't believe they actually, that, it, that, that Corelli's chief, you know, supporter Stuart Wallace of the University of Toronto, senior guy in the Royal Canadian Academy. That the moment that Eddie, uh, that 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 uh, that the teacher Teddy Elliott is going to make his presentation and lay out the whole case, Stuart Wallace pops up and just monopolizes the first huge chunk of his speaking time yeah. to give the case for the museum. I mean, this if this happened... That's why I'm saying, like, you could get a TV series out of it. If this happened to you at, an, if this happened to you at, a, at, a, at a symposium, <laughs> I mean, it would be unbelievable. Nobody would do that to you, but they did it to him. And then Wallace very clearly maneuvered the article out of the transactions to make sure it wouldn't run. So this kind of completely, as I said, it's almost cartoon-like behavior... You know, as I'm writing it, saying, "Well, you know, unfortunately, you know, the 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 von Danikeny types out there say, well, this is what goes on,' and then you kind of run into a case where, boy, oh boy, it really it, did go yeah. on in this one. But and this is why I want to. This is why I was really curious. I don't want to be handing ammunition to the, you know, to comfort the the Scott Walters of the world. It's to say, you know, this happened before, and within the academy." You really have to be aware of what these signs are for how the pseudo can happen. Right. Bad practices can happen yeah. inside the academy. But what, what so. I think what's cool is how Dodd really understood that by you know when he when he started showing the relics around, saying, oh, "I don't know what these could be. Yeah. It could be Indian, or maybe." Yeah. So he, so he's yeah. playing into that entirely, so that people say, "Well, of course he couldn't have pulled off this. Right, right, he had nothing right. to do with it. He doesn't yeah. even know the value of these things." Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, he, he just wasn't smart enough to really know the value. But he also, as you said, he's right. He, he uh, I, I really do believe, I mean, he knew they were Norse from very early on. But he, I, I think he just let people figure that out. He let them invest in it emotionally. You know, right. you know they sure. go to the library, look at this. Well, Eddie thinks they might be French or Indian, but holy God, look at this. Look at this picture from 1000 AD. He's got freaking Norse stuff. And then you go back to Eddie and like, ooh, I didn't know that. And you know, it was great. It was a great con. We need to go to break real quick. And when we come back, we will continue. We'll, we'll have a conclusion of this because it was kind of interesting. Funny meaty blokes you will see are a staple of our chaos. We hope you're enjoying this episode. This podcast is listener supported. And we'd like to thank our longtime supporters on Patreon. 
Beth Williams, Bill Ochter, Bobby Cox, Brent Murphy, Carl the Italian Stallion Sagan, Crystal Sanchez, Christina Sanford, Craig Cruz, Darren Davis, Elizabeth Teresa, Grace Yon, Heather Anderson, James Russell Laufen, Kimberly Bray, Lizzie in the Lab, Michelle Murphy, Nicholas Maloff, Nuclear Cat, Pennyhead, Randall Gaz, Roger Price, Sarah Fritz, Scott, Sid February, Takashi Tuyuka, Timothy Schreiner, and William Clayton. Thanks to all of our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, just look for us on Patreon. We'd also like to thank our one-time donor on coffee, Danny Baker. Thanks to all of our supporters. Now let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, and we are back, and we are still speaking with Douglas Hunter about his new book, Beardmore, about the Beardmore Relics, and I I read, like I said, I've, I've read your book, I really like how dense the the middle section is, uh, the, the part where, and I like how you broke it up, actually, you broke it up into, like, what, three different parts, four different parts? Four, and, like, four each parts, part yeah. kind of dealt with a chunk of the timeline of the development of Beardmore Relics, and... I think it's interesting, like, we bring, you keep bringing up the character Dodd, who is the, the person who, we're calling him the hoaxer, but he's the one that found the relics, and he's the one that, like, hemmed and hawed the relics, and, I mean, he really kept it alive, but you also are, you point out in the book several times that he didn't necessarily put these together, or, or try to put pass these off because he was trying to get one over on the museum itself. He was just trying to get some income during a time when it was kind of difficult to do so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, he did not have a grand master plan. So, and it became that class thing of, well, a guy like him couldn't come up with a grand master plan, so therefore he didn't have one. You know, this is, this is not something he would accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and, and the problems with the case really became that presented because Eddie never had a plan. I mean, he just sort of sold. He he told the story, and he just kept changing the details. And some of them were like, "I found them in night. I found them in 1933. I found them in 1934. I found them in 1931, or I found them in 1930. I found them, and I took them home right away. I found them, and I left them at the dump beside the thing for two months. I found them, and I left them there for two years. I mean, these are kind of critical. But it's very details. typical. Like, they're not. This is not. It's that very far typical of a, of a story yeah. of an origin story for. Uh, objects in question like yeah. that, you know, yeah. it, the, the shifting yeah. details so that you can never quite nail it down. But it also gives right. them a little bit of leeway that you're like, right. ah, but you said, and then they're like, oh yeah, but yeah, right. but but then this other thing, and so it gives them the ability right. to change their story on the fly <laughs> if they need to. The 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 part of the story that really should have sunk it, and I'm really amazed it didn't when it finally came out, is that Eddie talked about the shield, and he talked about grabbing the handle of the shield and trying to pull it out of the ground and it crumbled and he left with the shield handle in his hand and so Corelli was he had a shield handle and that's part of that letter I talked about to all the experts um but I mean one of them did say well I tried to find it in Peterson but I couldn't find an example uh only one of them said whatever you've got is not a shield handle because basically there are no examples of metal shield right. handles in Norse archaeology. Norse shields right, didn't right. have these handles. They didn't have metal handles. So what is the thing? 
And ironically, Teddy Elliott, I keep saying ironic, but it's a staggering. Teddy Elliott, the school teacher, actually got his hands on a copy of Peterson's book. He was looking through it. It's written in Norwegian. And he got a, a, he got a student at Queen's University in Kingston whose mother was Norwegian to go through it with him. Kind of gave a translation on the fly because he was just looking up the axe and thing. But he was trying to find the shield handle. And it's this most amazing letter he writes to the geologist uh, you know, who was working with him on the hoax. He says – you know, kind of went through, but then I got to this section of these things called Wranglin, and his stu- the student with him didn't know what the word Wranglin meant, and so he thought it was he thought it meant something like sword harness because this is right. all weaponry stuff, and the description and the thing even says these items which we're not going to discuss here are found in graves, and then he closes up the book. He actually didn't turn it one more page to where he would have seen a drawing of a rank. He thought one of the drawings looked kind of like the shield handle, but he didn't pursue it. He he closes the book up and it goes back to Cornell University and that's the end of it. Um, what he, if he had gone to the next page, he would have seen the drawing I used in the book, which is staggeringly similar to the object. And what a wrangling was, they were wrangles. They were sleigh rattles. And what these items were, they were very, peculiar to eastern norway pagan burials as were broken swords which Mm -hmm. the sword was broken and they were thought as best we can know is that they were attached to to harnesses on sleighs and so the sleigh man they would jangle along and ward Mm. off evil spirits as the sleigh went through the forest in the snow and so in these eastern norwegian pagan burials they would chuck in a sleigh rattle uh, to help the guy go to valhalla so you've got two huge problems if this right. is a sleigh rattle. One is Eddie's shield story is useless because obviously he didn't grab a sleigh rattle. I mean, it, I mean, there's just no way you can confuse a sleigh rattle with a shield rattle. There is no shield. There never was one. He just got this object from the basement and decided, well, it's kind of like a handle. I'm right. going to make a right. shield story. The other problem is if even – you know, if you accept it's a wrangle, which it is, how does it get to a grave in northern Ontario? How, I mean, who takes sleigh wrangles with them, you know, on this epic journey to throw them in the grave at the same time? So in terms of this deference, you see, it isn't positively identified until Johan Bronstad from the Danish National Museum is brought over by the Viking Fund, the the predecessor of the Wendergren Foundation, uh, to look at all the quite all the debated relics of Vikings. This is after the Second World War. So he's gonna look at the Newport Tower, he's gonna look at the Beer Bar relics, he's gonna look at the Kensington Stone stuff. And it's 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 um Bronstad then writing his report in the fi- in early fifties actually is able to identify it as what it is, is a sleigh wrangle. And incredibly he doesn't use the evidence to dismiss the find. I mean, that's the level of deference that the wow. museum enjoys. He mm-hmm. says, maybe not enough evidence yet, but he writes a letter to the museum and says, I think it's an authentic grave, but maybe you just want to hold off for a while, you know, on making further claims, because I'm sure there's going to be more evidence come up. So here's a guy who has the silver bullet and the gun ready to just say, this is bunk, you know, like, this is terrible, mm-hmm. and, wow. and he doesn't pull the trigger. And it, it was an example of extreme deference at the time. Also, reputation it, of the institution. It, it also raises this question, right? So museums are not these objective repositories where they just put a bunch of artifacts out. Yeah. There is a preferred narrative that they want to share with people. Yeah. And but, so, why was this the preferred narrative? Why was the desire? Why was there this desire to to, to find 
evidence that confirmed a Viking presence in Canada a thousand years ago. Yeah, well, there was a there was a profound desire just in North America in general. I dealt with this a bit when I wrote The Place of Stone because it comes in a tight rock and this the Thorf and Carl Stephanie so-called inscription. There was a very there was sort of multiple levels of very powerful desires about a Norse presence. Some of it was around Scandinavian American immigration and sort of the mythology making of of arrivals and being the original founding peoples. And so the Beardmore relics were very very popular in the Scandinavian community, and it was actually one of the problems that the that James Hansen had saying the stuff was mine is that he was immediately alienated by all his all his colleagues, friends and colleagues in the Scandinavian community, which really pushed him into some fairly loopy try to make both sides happy claims about what was going on, which destroyed his credibility. Um, but there was also this very much broader thing, which I've dealt with before as well. I call it, which is broadly called Gothicism, which was a very much, you know, frankly racist white nationalist, Northern European, you know, descendants of, you know, Japheth, the favorite son of Noah. This was the, you know, the best of the best of white people. And they were supposed to overspread the world. And so you have a, you know, you have an eugenicist immigration policies in both Canada and the United States at the time. You know, Scandinavians are seen as the ideal people. And there was a lot of, in New England as well, this idea that the fascination with maybe Vinland is here is to connect with our Norse ancestors. And so there, there was this there was this idea in Canada as well that if, well, we're all British and we were British until 1947, Canadians traveled on British passports. Um, and our British heritage is Norse because of the Norman invasion of England in 1066. So these are our ancestors. Mm-hmm. And isn't it great they were here? So there's these powerful race-based, you know, cultural notions around proof of vikings in america and it's 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 why you know even today you really have to be careful because ideas around you know you know viking presence really gets white supremacists excited they just love the idea of these you know of these norsemen being here long before anybody else was yeah you know if you go to see the kensington runestone in that that museum chamber of commerce building you can buy a license plate frame that says mm-hmm. birthplace nice. of america mm-hmm. yeah and i think that's that's yeah that's, a lot. that's brilliant yeah because that's what it's that's that's the foundation myth orm overland the uh you know the, the immigration historian uh it, it, it does great stuff on these on, on this on this foundation idea and and it was it was very powerful i mean leaf erickson days were just big big stuff in the 1930s in, in especially in the united states why do you think it's vikings yeah. like why are the Vikings so attractive to not just apparently Americans, but also Canadians as being founders? Well, they got well, every, they got well, everywhere. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, if you're looking for somebody who has an actual record of being able to travel That's long true. distance. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they're the hardy northern warrior ethos. They are, you have to kind of give people space and say, look, they're just fascinating anyway. Just because you like Vikings doesn't no, I mean, I love Vikings, I mean, but... The Vikings show on, on, on the history is, is, is it's interesting in a, in a general way to people. They really are interested in them. And they are supposed to be the first Europeans in North America. And there still is that you know, settler foundation myth thing that people get excited about. But there, then, there's, then there's the two other extremes, which is the 
you know, is the Scandinavian homemaking, you know, we immigrated here in the 19th century, right. 20th century, and look, our ancestors were here a thousand years before we were, so they were the founding people, not the French or the English or the Dutch or the Germans, it was us. We were here right. first. We founded this place. Maybe we didn't stick with it, but we're back. And, you know, we have a claim to this place. So, and then on the other side, the extreme is the, frankly, white nationalist, racist, you know, because we, we have groups called Sons of Odin and stuff. So when you get into the white supremacist areas, very, obviously they're very fascinated with these people. And it is that hardy northern warrior, you know, overcoming all this gothicist stuff that's not just Vikings, but overcoming the power of Republican Rome and, and the yeah. Catholic Church and – you know, they're the spirit, and, and it's the Republican spirit of the all thing. You know, assembly in Iceland. That's a fa- that's a foundational predecessor to Republicanism in the United States. So there's these little touch points that really make them attractive uh, to to contemporary people. Yeah, but Dodd had none of this in his mind when he started showing right, people right, right. these these relics on a train. No, no, he just he just he got lucky that way. He just he just he tapped it. Right. You know, he just happened to have the right things that the right people were going to, you know, if he had tried to sell them as French relics, nobody would have been interested. In. In fact, that's one of the amazing things with you know, that Corelli's chauvinism, cultural chauvinism was so high that he could he could care less about French Canada as part of Canada's past. As far as he was concerned, Canada's past was British. Really, uh-huh. I mean, it was. He actually said at one point in the letter that if we ever found, you know, Montcalm's flags in the plains of Abraham, it would be interesting as an example of a textile. But it really had no interest as a wow. historical <laughs> object. I mean, he was really that that extreme oh, in, his, in his attitude. Uh-huh. So you know, yeah, he wanted Norse stuff because it's British, and we're all British. We're all Norse in some way. You know, when was he at the museum? Well, he was actually he was at the museum before the museum existed because he went he became uh, he, he through a lot of fortuitous connections happenstance he'd gone to England as a gra- as a graduate student to write about he, he's enamored with socialism and he was going to write about you know working class you know stuff and he, he mm-hmm. kind of stumbled into being an assistant of Flinders Petrie in Egypt and just he really impressed everybody and he, and he became an antiquities collector and he was buying stuff for museums you know in the world and also private collectors in Canada he impressed tons of people back in Toronto and his collecting became the key part to found what became the the, the Royal Ontario Museum had five different divisions, but the archaeology division was the, the biggest one. So he was hired in, I think, January 1907 to be a collector for, for the while he was still in Egypt for the for the university, and then the the museum was founded as an adjunct of the university as as a provincial public museum, and it opened in 1914. And he was the first and founding and the only director of the archaeology division up until he retired in 1946. And he did an he did do an amazing job collecting how much of the stuff he got is dodgy still kind of a open question out there in the archaeology world and it's another aspect of curly because he really took a lot of pride in insisting i have a severely trained eye i know fakes because the market was flooded with fakes from the mediterranean mm-hmm. when he was there and he was aware of it and he was always afraid of being duped and he took a lot of pride in saying you can't fool me so being fooled by Dodd was just, you know, and so people that supported Corelli 
kind of fail to, to grasp the fact that we're not talking about fake relics. We're talking about real objects in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. It's like taking Roman coins and burying them in the banks of the Ohio River and digging them up. That doesn't mean the Romans were in the Ohio River um, any more than the fact that there were Vikings you know, in northern Ontario just because a guy said he found them in his mining claim. Well, obviously, you've just finished writing a book because you have it all at the at the tip of your tongue. I know how that goes. But uh, I was going to ask about uh, structure and uh, sort of some of the people. At, at one point, what do you talk about that that the uh, social networks in China were shallow and broad? I believe in Canada. Right? Yeah, I keep saying that about Canada. We're 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 I don't know how many thousand miles wide and about <laughs> six inches deep. And it's still, it's still 35 million people. It's still incredible the number of people I know. Like, it's not even Kevin Bacon distances. It's like you go one, two steps removed. So, yeah, so Dodd got to Corelli because the guy that was the geologist who, who ran the mining school toured the province or the prospecting school was, was a guy, Ned Burwash, who was a childhood friend of Corelli's. Um, whose father was the chancellor of Victoria College, University of Toronto, and been had supervised Corelli. So it, it's just that's why Dodd, when he waylaid part part of the story, is waylaying you know Burwatch on the street to show him his case of weird stuff. And Burwatch immediately writes a letter to who he writes it to Charles Corelli, one of the most resound museum archaeology directors in the world, because of this is the way Canada is. That's how easy it is for not because I don't think Dodd. I don't think Dodd knew that. I think Dodd just saw Burwash as a geology guy who knew a lot about things buried in the ground and had would have had connections to, you know, mining. And so, hey, let's get him interested in the Norse relics, and then you know maybe somebody's going to put some money Doug, into the middle. Doug, your book has me. been out now. Um, it's been available for purchase, so have read it. They've had time to digest it. Um, what kind of reception is the book getting? Well, it's been out a couple weeks. So the most interesting things I'm looking forward to hearing back for some of the people like James Hansen's descendants, because his grandson is in the book, and he was a huge help in in documenting it. But his great-granddaughter as well, she follows me on Twitter, <laughs> and she's been commenting back to me on stuff. Uh, one of the things she said to me the other day was, wow, these, these people really wrote a lot of letters back and forth. Um, and she actually said, I wonder what would they be like in the world of Twitter today? I mean, would they – all these – allegations and insinuations and slanderings what what would they do today than they they were doing then and that's that's an open question i have to say people need to understand that this is a major scandal within a major public museum the, the rom is not that institution today i mean they couldn't have been more interested and fascinated with what this thing was all about and they knew the stuff was in the files so i had to go to a lot more files than just the rom but they really wanted to know what was going on they really and in fact i'm giving the the Edward S. Rogers lecture in anthropology at the ROM in in a couple of weeks. They invited me in to deliver the thing on on Beardmore and what it means about the museum. And I think the biggest change that we've seen is that one of the things Edmund Carpenter ran into when he when he kind of went on the you know let's get this stuff out of here. This is ridiculous. Is what he talked about 
and when he wrote about it shortly after was what he called the association with institutional power. And he, as an American, he came from upstate New York and later went to California and taught there. Um, he was an outsider, an outlier in this very cliquish world of Canadian academia. And he said the what he called the association with institutional power was was more prevalent in Ontario than anywhere else you'd seen in North America. And what he meant by that was when when the when the scandal was breaking again and the the doubts were being raised in the fifties in the nineteen fifty six, he went on television with uh A. D. Tushingham, who was the guy that took over from Corelli as the director. And he said before they went on the air, Tushingham came to him and said, I just want you to understand that what I might think privately about the relics and what I am obligated to say publicly on behalf of the museum may not be the same thing. And Carpenter was disgusted with this. And he felt this was something that pervaded the museum, that people were really more more interested in protecting basically the museum's reputation, you know, loyalty to the member. Curly was still alive at the time, but he was this hugely important, great man, protecting his reputation. Not really understanding that you don't rep- you don't you don't protect an institution's reputation by right. covering up a very bad acquisition. I mean, you protect the reputation by saying we're going to look at this thing again, and if it's bad, which to Tushikim's credit, he came around to doing. But but you know, Car- Carpenter really felt this was very much at play in the you know in the case in the 1950s. People just were going to defend it because hey, it's the museum, and the museum bought it. And vouch for the authenticity, and if it's criticized, then you're saying the museum doesn't know what it's doing, and we can't. Now, we're not going to back. The museum uh, eventually bring the relics back out because they took them off display once they, and they brought them back yeah, out they, again. They did. This was almost. Yeah, it was kind of comically embarrassing to me because <laughs> when I first got into these things, I was actually working on my doctoral dissertation, and when I found, you know, I sort of knew about Beamer, and I saw this material, and and it didn't fit my disc, but I thought this is really kind of cool. I, I, I'm going to get a chance. I'm going to come back and do Beard War. So it was about two years later, I came back and said, yeah, I want to write about this. And I was back in the museum archives and one of the staff, a really nice person, I, I don't want to name because it's really not a fault of them, but I said, well, you know, I knew they'd gone off display. They took them off display and just quietly put them away. And I said, well, where are they now? And he said, and he said I, I don't know where they are now. And it wasn't much earlier in the press that the museum had announced, because it's got a big paleontology division as well, they had found the entire skeleton of a barasaurus in the oh. basement of the building. I mean, and put and it on. I mean, that is, is a what? That's a large Diplodocus brontosaurus-y sized dinosaur in the basement, didn't know wow. they owned it. And I thought. They had a whole freaking dinosaur down there somewhere. I'm I'm looking for a couple small scraps of old metal. Uh, if they don't know where this stuff is, we're never going to find it. So I just thought, well, they're gone. You know, I don't know. They're just buried somewhere. And then I was invited to give a talk on Champlain at the museum in the fall of 1915. So I showed up to give the talk, and I had a couple of minutes. I had some time to spare, so I, I'll just wander the museum. I went up to the third floor. And there's the Sigmund F. Samuel collection of European stuff. And there's a display case of early medieval weapons. I walked up to it. I looked right in the case and I looked down and went, there's the Beardmore sword. How, and then I looked uh, up and then there's oh, wow. the axe head. 
And they were just, they were hiding in plain sight. They're not labeled from Beardmore. They're just <laughs> early Norse. There's no origin for them. Um, but, you know, the acquisition session file is 936, which means 1936. There's, I mean, they absolutely are the Beardmore stuff. Some of the other bits and pieces are in storage, including the so-called shield <laughs> handle. But there they were. And so what had happened is in the late 1970s, there was a new museum being set up in Nipigon, which is right close to where they were found. And there was this public agitation started about getting the beer bar relics back uh, because they were on display. And the museum by that time was very resistant to anything that sniffed of resurrect them as art as, as real and as a real find. And I think the museum was clearly terrified that if they deaccessioned them and let these people have them, there was going to be the whole thing was going to start up again. It was going to be Eddie Dodd's amazing discovery of the grave, and, you know. So they didn't want to give them up, but uh, but also as the conversation went, it was very clear that the guy in charge of the museum was quite convinced the whole thing was a hoax. So they compromised. They made some castings for the you know for the museum, which is which are still on display up there. And then I think they just very quietly put the relics back up on display in Toronto. To say, well, we still own them and they're ours, and they just stuck them in the in the exhibit area. Um, but I just, I was amazed. I walked up to them and went, "Well, there they are. That's yeah. them, you know." And I was too dumb two years ago, and when somebody says, "I don't know where they are," to say, "I think I'll go look in the, I'll just go look in the display wow. cases. Maybe I'll notice them." <laughs> that's the, the, the story was so bizarre. I had to go back and reread that section. I can't be, I can't be understanding this. They yeah. can't possibly be just there on display with other medieval stuff. But that's, but where that's they exactly are. what happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's see, that seems like a pretty typical. Like if there's an artifact that has a weird history, I'm thinking there's the quote unquote unlucky mummy case in the British Museum. And while on their website they talk about the legend of it, yeah. it is not remotely labeled as such, but it is on display. I'm intrigued by what they'll do with it going forward because there was a big touring show on Viking artifacts that came to the museum in the fall and last fall and they knew and they knew everybody there knew I was doing this work and so they decided to get the beard more sorted out, gave it a good cleaning, and they had they, they put a coda on the end of this European show which had stuff of maybe or probably Norse stuff from North America, including some bits from Lasso Meadow, some debatable stuff from the Arctic, and maybe these are carvings that look like Norse people. And then they laid out the Beardmore sword at the very end. It's the last thing you saw. And there was a display description, and thank goodness it just said that, you know, every, this is widely accepted now that it was a hoax. So I don't know what they're doing with it as it goes back in. Maybe after the book comes out, they'll try to, you know, drive some traffic to it, you know. Put some labels up. Yep, these are the Beardmore relics. They yeah, see what they do. Right? Yeah. And so you just yeah. said after the book comes out, but it has been out for a few weeks. I just want to yeah. make sure everybody knows where they can get it. Can they get yeah. it on Amazon? Uh, yeah, they, if you want to deal with Amazon, you can get it with an Amazon. Um, I'm in Canada, so I don't know. And McGill Queens University Press is the publisher. Okay. It's very well distributed. I mean, they distribute in Europe as well. They have an office in London, in Chicago. I mean, they're, they're – they're, they're not hard to find stuff from. So you can actually, if, if you're easiest, uh, Powell's, uh, I know the big independent bookstore has it on their site. And I think it's important to remember places like that, uh, in uh, Portland. Um, so yeah, it's, it's around, it's out there. It's, it's not hard to get. You can order it directly from McGill Queens if you want. They got an nice. easy thing to, you can just go right on the website and order it up. And, uh, Sarah, and you can put a link right on the blog. Oh yeah. So yeah. 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 I'm definitely going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. 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 
Yeah. Well. Fantastic. Yeah, or go to, and, and plus you can go to my you can go to my website. There's a page for the book, and there's a bunch of links I put in for here's places you can order. Is um, it what's there? May what's be more of the, the what's the URL of that? Uh, you can just go to douglashunter.ca, just my name, douglashunter.ca, and that'll take you to the uh, WordPress site, and there's a link for beer, for beer more. Well, Doug, thank you so much for coming on yeah. to the show and telling us about this. The, there's uh, a lot of information in this book. I mean, and you've given us a lot of information in this podcast. It's it's a really fascinating yeah. story, and I think the story yeah. about the story is really the most fascinating part of the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That's what that's what hooked me. It's it's a detective story about a detective story, really, because that's yeah. what I kind of felt like I was doing. I was trying mm-hmm. to investigate what the investigator. But did. thank you very much for coming back on. And I guess when your next book comes out, we'll have you come back on for that one. Uh, next book no, is no going pressure, to be. Apparently. Uh, I'm, I'm going to need Eric book because I think I'm 99 percent certain the contract's coming. I'm writing a book about the First World War and a soldier and a war artist, so it's uh, going to be a bit okay. of a shift. But always, always happy well, to go back to archaeology. Maybe you can dig something <laughs> up. I don't. Well, if you ever come across <laughs> another fun artifact that you just want to tell us all about, I mean, you have you know what show to come to. So, Doug, thank you again for coming on, and uh, yes, thank you, Doug. Yes, yeah. thank you. Thanks. Extrapolating from a single stone the extent of a whole complex and then publishing it. If you'd like to support the podcast, consider donating to us on Patreon or Ko-fi. Either option helps us out. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on the blog, www.archiefantasies.com, and like and share us wherever you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at Archiefantasies, or you can reach us by email at Archiefantasies at gmail.com. That's A-R-C-H-Y fantasies at gmail.com theme music was provided by archaeosuit productions this episode was produced and edited by sarah head no we don't do dinosaurs we don't do dinosaurs see are you happy do you get it now do you get it honestly